Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Peterson Toyota, who's a great Ram Nation partner, has been proudly serving the Fort Collins, Windsor, and Loveland communities since 1968. They're a family owned and operated business, and they're committed to making the car buying and service experience smooth and stress free with a friendly and accommodating staff in all their departments. Inventory is still an issue in the car business today, but Peterson Toyota prioritizes their inventory for local customers, ensuring that you have the best selection around. If you're in the market for a new or used vehicle, please give Peterson Toyota first shot at your business. Thanks. Enjoy the show. Fight, 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 go Rams! <laughs> oh man, how can you not get fired up with that version of the Ram fight song? We are only two and a half weeks away from the CSU football opener. I'm having a hard time containing my excitement. Very special thanks, by the way, to Frank Trimble and Jesse Cowan for letting us use that, the metal core version of the Ram fight song. If you haven't heard the full version, Check out Frank Trimble on Twitter, or X, whatever it's called these days. His handle is at CSU Trimble, T-R-I-M-B-L-E. In one of his recent posts, uh, he shares a link to the full version of that song on YouTube. Absolutely rocks. Excellent work, boys. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. I'm Joel Canalamesa, joined by Michael Rowe. Today, we've got two special guests joining us, Jack and Ginger Graham talking a little bit off air, but uh, super great to have both of you. Thank you guys so much for spending a few minutes with us today. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Ginger, you look like you are, are you in like the uh, wine cellar? Are you up in the mill top or where are you? <laughs> I'm in the wine cellar at Ginger and Baker. I thought this might be a quieter place for me to talk to you. It's awesome. Well, Ginger, first uh, we'll start with you and um, want to ask you a bunch of stuff. And then obviously we bring, we'll talk to Jack as well more around the college athletic scene, but uh, you know, Ginger, we, we think the world of you every time we have lunch or dinner at Ginger and Baker, you always stop by and sit and chat with us. You're just the best. Um, I don't know if you knew this, I think you did, but we hosted a bunch of Ram Nation fans last year for a Q and a event with the athletic director up in the mill top space. Kate Cooper helped organize it and your staff did a great job. So thank you as always. It was great. Everyone raved about it. And just, you know, we just love Ginger Baker so much. You've been a great sponsor for ramnation.com. I just want to ask you, how have things been going, you know, in the last couple of years, I guess it's been a couple of years post-COVID. It's kind of a rough time to have been a restaurant owner and you had to get real creative in how you managed through that period. But how are things going today? Well, thanks for having me, Joel. It's nice to see you even remotely. And we uh, definitely benefit from you guys coming here and bringing folks to Ginger Baker, which we appreciate. The business is coming back. 
it's definitely different than it was before COVID. You may recall we were only a new business before COVID. And then, of course, spending the better part of a year and a half closed or mostly closed was not very good for business. And the biggest challenge has been recruiting staff to fill all the positions. We hire about 120 employees in the business and keeping fully staffed and everyone trained and operating at the level that creates a great guest experience has been quite a challenge post-COVID. But today we're close to fully staffed. Uh, we still struggle a bit with supply issues for food and product. You can't imagine how hard it is to get a to-go box these days yeah. or good lettuce, you know, with all the issues that happen in California weather. So we juggle every day trying to make sure that we're ready for the guests to come in. But they are coming. And in fact, this week is exciting because, of course, it's move-in week at CSU. So we're meeting all the new freshmen and their family, their siblings, parents, grandparents, and all the students returning. So it's humming around here this week. Ginger and Baker is a special place. I love all of the spaces we've, we've gotten a tour of every single nook and cranny of it. it. It's amazing. Love having dinner in the cash and, and as well in the cafe, but what's uh? I know you've talked about this ad nauseum over the years, but what talk about the process of converting that building from an abandoned, messy 110 year old feed mill into what it is today. You guys ran into a lot of unknowns once you start tearing it apart. Talk a little bit about some of that. Yeah, so it was a crazy idea. I think Jack still looks at me and arches his eyebrows about you did what? But this building to me represented so much about Fort Collins. It's the place where farmers and town people came together to do commerce. It's where the agriculture community came and talked about the weather and drank coffee together. Kids adopted kittens and baby chicks and where you picked up your dog food and your cat food and your horse feed and your hay. It really was a central part of the fabric of Fort Collins for over a hundred years. And unfortunately it was sitting in disrepair. It had been uh, decommissioned about a year before we saw it. So it was still sitting here with molasses in the basement in the molasses pit, old rotten grain up in the grain bins and a building that you know had seen a hundred years of weather without much repair. So it had water leaks everywhere and a lot of issues. The good news is structurally, when they built this thing and now 120 years ago, uh, they did a good job. It's Colorado stone in the foundation and then two stories of bricks held together really with just posts and beams that are original to the building. We found that the molasses pit still had molasses. We thought it was empty. So when the guys dropped into it to start jackhammering out the walls to take out the pit, they sunk down to their knees in molasses. And you know, where you find sweet things, you find other unattractive things that like sugar. Mm. Uh, we fondly nicknamed it the La Brea Tar Pits of Fort Collins. <laughs> so that was an unpleasant task, but thankfully with a lot of cleaning, removing the guts of the building, cleaning it completely, and then doing a lot of work to prop up the structure with steel at every door, new uh, ceiling with giant beams and posts, and a lot of repair work, including two old guys that had worked together for 45 years that do what they call historic repointing. They're the ones that put the grout in the old brick to stabilize the building because you could see the great outdoors in some places in the building. 
And they went about repairing that with the appropriate kind of grout that fits the quality and the softness of the brick from a hundred years ago. So today you can enjoy the basement, which we call the wine cellar, which is a beautiful room for private events. You can stand up in the mill top and have a vaulted ceiling and a beautiful backdrop for a wedding, an anniversary, a party, a big business event. You can go out to the rooftop patio and the cache, have an all glass area that the windows open like accordions and you feel like you're in the great outdoors and can see the night sky. Or you can sit on the cafe patio and watch the traffic go by on Linden Street, always greet the train when it comes through and really have just a good old time with your family and friends. So we feel like it's going to continue to be that great gathering place in Fort Collins. We hope for the next 50 years and welcome people in from all over town. You, you just went through a bunch of the great spaces you have. Do you have a favorite or anything that kind of near and dear? Um, you know, the teaching kitchen really calls to my heart. The idea that it's where people come together, meet each other. We see a lot of people in teaching kitchen classes, swap contact information, become friends together. Uh, we see celebrations. We do team building, baby showers, bridal showers, birthday parties, family dinners, People learn things together. People take pictures, make memories, have fun. We try to use the words a lot, surprise and delight in the building that you come in and uh, wow, I can make that. It's so easy. Or I had no idea that's how you did it. And you get this surprise element and you delight with your friends and family. The teaching kitchen, I tell everyone uh, the story that I learned a lot of things at my mom's uh, kitchen table, not just how to cook. You know, I learned my manners. Uh, I learned the alphabet. I learned to respect my elders sitting at that kitchen table. And that's really what I think of the teaching kitchen as a representative of how we engage together as a community, how we learn together, make new friends, build those bridges. And building community is really the central idea of the business. And the teaching kitchen represents that first and foremost. So, Ginger, thanks again for being on with us today. Now, you made your mark in pharmaceuticals. You were the first woman president and CEO of Amlin Pharmaceuticals. You were a chairperson for Guidant Corp. You were a faculty at Harvard, you know, where you got your MBA. And I think at that school down south from Fort Collins. But uh, with all that success, why did you move to the restaurant business? Oh, so it's really, That's a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whose crazy idea was that? You know, the idea actually originally was just to open a pie shop with a little teaching kitchen and a gift store, because I believe pie is a wonderful symbol of things that we all care about. Usually it's made by hand from someone who loves us. It's made with locally sourced ingredients. It honors the season so they're fresh. Uh, it's something that you share with other people. Not most people don't eat a whole pie on their own. So it's a shareable food. And this idea of uh, local agriculture made by hand with love, shared with other people you care about, to me is a very powerful metaphor for how I was raised, what matters to me in life, and what I think we all resonate with and wish we had more of. So my goal was to open a little pie shop. It was my retirement project because we moved here when Jack came up to CSU and I quit teaching at Harvard so I could help him raise money for the stadium and 
meet all the Ram fans and support all the student athletes. And I thought, well, I need a project. So I thought I'd open my little pie shop, but then I found this building, fell in love with it, which is always dangerous. And it required much more investment, renovation. And as you might imagine, Jack asked me, how many pies would you have to sell to pay for the renovation of that building? And I did the math. It was 67,358 pies a day I needed to sell to pay for the renovation. (laughs) And thought, okay, well, maybe we're not going to do that. So that's when we decided to add the two restaurants. And I think it's a much better idea. There are so many reasons to come, you know, date night, anniversary, business with your dog, with your kids, with your family, to take a class, to have coffee, to have pie. You can have lunch or dinner or a party. So there's so many reasons to come, but it is a much bigger enterprise and frankly, a very tough business. You know, the restaurant industry is very small margins. You unfortunately have more waste. You never know who's going to show up, what they're going to order or how much they want. So planning is really a key feature. And we are still learning elements about the business. Jack and I, neither one uh, come from a restaurant industry or family. So We've learned a few hard lessons and hopefully over time, you know, people will embrace Ginger and Baker, realize that it's an important part of the community and hopefully they are proud of it being here and they'll bring and tell all their friends and family so it can grow. So how many pies are you at on your goal? Oh my gosh. Well, we're not even to a thousand a day. Can you imagine how far I am from the goal? But Thanksgiving week, we'll sell over a thousand pies. So we push a lot of pie around here. Wow. That's awesome. That's impressive. That's impressive. Did you get your love of of making pies from your mom? Did I read that or hear that somewhere? Yes. Yes, Joel. My parents, you know, we were uh, raised on a farm and we always had food. And my parents were those giving types that all the neighbors, anyone that needed help, anyone that passed through my hometown, If you had a baby or someone was sick or, you know, a father lost a job or a mom couldn't uh, help the family for some reason, my parents took food. And one of the things was pie. My mom would have me make 20 pie crusts on the weekend and she put them in the freezer. And then when she was taking food to people, she would finish and make a pie. And so that symbolism of what that means to help others, to be in community, Uh, to make something that's a gift of yourself to others, to include people. And, you know, we all celebrate over food. Uh, We get married with food. We go to, you know, memorials with food. We have birthdays with food. We uh, pop the cork to our loved one with food. We gather together. And when we do to make memories together, we include food. And that's really the core element of how I was raised that you show hospitality and love and a gift of community by sharing food. And this building, I think, is a symbol of that. And we hope for it to be something that all of Fort Collins is very proud of. Now, you were born and raised in Arkansas. Uh, I have family in Gentry. Yeah. What part, the, what part of the state did you grow up in? Well, my family's neighbors. I'm from Springdale, Arkansas. Springdale. Just down the road from Gentry. So yep. I know where you come from. So Walmart right there, born and raised. (laughs) Yes, J.B. Hunt, Tyson's Walmart. Those people were neighbors and friends. And I, you know, I tell people it's one of the great things about Fort Collins is it's the first community I've lived in since I was raised in Springdale, Arkansas. 
that I see the same values. There are very wealthy people and very poor people, but everyone buys their truck at the same dealership. They eat at the same restaurants. They worship at the same churches. Their kids go to the schools together. That's how I was raised. It makes for robust and giving communities. And I believe Fort Collins represents that. And we love it here. Fort Collins is a wonderful community. So being right down the road from Fayetteville, was it just a foregone conclusion that you were going to be a hog? <laughs> yeah, so that's what Jack tells everyone. His wife is a hog and he gets away. <laughs> <with it>. uh, <laughs> but I actually started my education uh, at Abilene Christian in Abilene, Texas, because I wanted to be a veterinarian and Arkansas didn't have a vet school. So back then, if you went to vet school in Texas and completed and came back as a veterinarian in Arkansas, the state would pay for your education. And that was very important because my family really didn't have the means to support my brother who was becoming a pharmacist and I who was becoming a a veterinarian, which meant both of us were in school forever. And so I started out in pre-vet and then I worked for a vet for a year and decided that that really wasn't my best career. So I ended up moving back home and finishing my education at a land-grant school, University of Arkansas, just like CSU, got a great education in the School of Agriculture and a great career coming out of there. So it was a really good experience for me and I shall always be a hog. Can you uh, give us your best blue pig, Suey? Pig, Suey! <laughs> wow, it's just echoing through the wine cellar there. I love it. <laughs> that was awesome. that was impressive. <laughs> well, it's one thing that you know I brought with my passion to help Jack at CSU is one of the things we learned when we first got here was the very low participa participation rate by. RAM alumni in the Alumni Association. So I was on the Alumni Association at the University of Arkansas on their board. And 23.6% of all living hogs were lifetime members of the Alumni Association when I was on the board. And when we got to CSU, it was 3.6%. And there is no way a school can be at its best, attract the best new students fulfill its educational mission and be a place of pride and accomplishment if alumni don't care and aren't engaged. And that was a huge part of Jack's passion for why to bring the stadium on campus to get people back on campus to energize the alumni association to activate all of the alumni who were athletes and to bring CSU's glory back to today's memory so that our former students are back on campus, they care, they get involved, they become mentors, they give back. And that's what makes great universities. And I had that experience at Arkansas and Jack was committed to helping everything he could do to bring that back to CSU. Yeah, it, you you know, it was a big deal when my wife and I became lifetime members uh, for the Alumni Association. So love hearing that. Passion. My wife and I just did it this year. I've always donated, you know, annually to it. I don't know if it's just a newer push and Christy Bolander's staff and, and maybe some of this recent efforts have been to get people to become lifetime members, but we just did it this year and we're really proud to, to do that as well. So I'm glad that you were kind of at the forefront of helping push that. Jack and I did that first off when we got here and uh, it surprised me that people didn't understand, you know, the statement that that made and, and what it means and it's to me, it's no different than Ginger and Baker. It's are we proud of the school? 
Uh, do we want to show it off to our friends and family? Do we want to recruit people to it? Uh, do we want to be associated in a way that we're there for the long term? We're willing to give back. We support students. We show up for events. We want the school to be great. And the only way it happens is people who benefited through education and affiliation give back to the school. That's what makes institutions great. And I think CSU is a terrific institution. It just needs more of its alumni to come back. And first of all, they have to be asked. They have to feel appreciated. They have to be engaged and they have to find meaning. And that's what leadership's about. And so obviously, you know, we're excited because we think Coach Norvell is a great leader and can bring that to the football program. And as everyone uh, may not like to say it, but knows as the football program goes, so goes the reputation of the athletic department and the school. And we want CSU to be great. Very well said, as we do as well. Last couple questions here for you, Ginger. How did you feel about Jack taking the athletic director job at CSU? <laughs> well, that's a loaded question. Uh, you know, everything that Jack and I do, we support each other. And it has caused us to have crazy careers. We lived apart most of the time for almost 14 years because we ran companies in different geographies. We both traveled the globe with our careers. And now I spend almost every waking hour at Ginger and Baker. So I'm not there to support him and the farm. But when he was at CSU, it was the same. You know, he worked 100 hours a week and I knew that would be what he would do. So we had a long talk about it. Uh, his passion is about kids and helping great young people find themselves and feel what it feels like to work really hard to sacrifice and then to have success associated with that because that understanding of the investment and the reward will serve them for the rest of their lives. Uh, so I met, you know, with the president of the university, with Jack, we had long conversations about it and he felt very convicted that the, the school had to have an on-campus stadium to bring alumni back and to recruit great athletes that would help the purpose of the university to be even more attractive, to raise more funds and deliver better education to kids. So he was convicted and he wanted to do it. And so he jumped in with both feet. Uh, and I knew from day one that his standards and his expectations are to be number one. So he was relentless about it. And that's why, you know, I pitched in uh, stopping my teaching appointment at Harvard and moved to Fort Collins because I knew that it takes everything to make greatness happen. To expect excellence is an extreme sacrifice personally. And Jack was committed to that and that he would benefit from me helping. And so we ended up doing it together, which was a ton of fun. And I think, you know, anything that is that rewarding and has the chance to touch that many young people and inspire them to be everything they can be is worth doing. Amazing. Well, last question, a couple questions here on, on going back to the restaurant. I know Mike wanted to ask this. I think he got some odd looks. He's at the uh, U.S. Amateur at Cherry Hills right now, and he's getting looks like, hey, stop talking. Shut up over there. We're trying to concentrate. So I'll ask this <laughs> last one. He, he always has this food question for all of our guests. But do you guys have um, both of you have a uh, favorite dish at Ginger and Baker? Mm, I'm all about pie. I can't help it. 
And right now we have my mom's recipe for my dad's favorite pie is in the case. It's a fresh strawberry pie. Cool. It's a home run. It's hard to beat. All right. Jack? Pour his light and a prime rub. <laughs> Perfect. That sounds really good right now. Yeah, that does sound amazing. <laughs> That's good. All right. Those are good choices. Um, Ginger, what's, uh, what are some of your uh, upcoming events you're excited about? I know I saw you, you guys are partaking in the, um, the third annual taste walkabout where attendees walk to all the different restaurants throughout old town and, and try the different cuisines. What's, uh, anything else on your radar? You know, we try to participate in a lot of things. There's a fun upcoming barbecue and pie baking competition and Ginger and Baker will be there as judges and to support the pie baking that's in partnership with uh, new Belgium and the folks at Old Town Spice Shop. So that'll be fun. Uh, we also will be uh, supporting the Peach Festival. We're donating a bunch of peach pies for the kids' pie eating competition. It uh, won't be long before we'll have a fun dog costume Halloween photo event here at the building. And of course, we'll be ready for all homecoming weekend and into the holidays. So we're all in for the school, the town, and all the guests that come to visit Fort Collins. Well, can't wait. Can't wait for college football and can't wait to be uh, in Old Town a lot more and, and coming over to the restaurant pre and post game. So really appreciate it, Ginger. You are the best and we appreciate all your time and love catching up with you. Thanks, Joel. So nice to talk to you. Thanks for including us. You bet. Thank you for joining us. All right. We thank Ginger Graham for joining us today. And as always, for her support of RamNation.com, remember that the cafe has happy hour every Tuesday through Friday from 2 to 5 p.m. with $5 wines, cocktails, beers. They also have an amazing menu of American comfort food classics and currently have an amazing special that includes an eight ounce bone in dry aged ribeye pork chop from Gold Canyon served with mashed potatoes, asparagus, hazel dill, oyster mushrooms and red eye demi. Just 24 bucks. Can't beat that. Not to be outdone, check out Whiskey Wednesdays in the cash, where they have 50% off select pours, which you can pair with their amazing steaks and chops. And of course, they've got great events and cooking classes each and every month, including one that's coming up next Wednesday, Summer Beer Cooking with Horse and Dragon Brewing Company. It takes place uh, the 23rd of August. You'll learn to make IPA queso, homemade chips, beer-battered Baja fish tacos, and more. Check out gingerbaker.com slash calendar for a full list of cooking classes and other events. This place is amazing, guys. Support our friend Ginger Graham and treat yourself to world-class experience at our favorite place, Ginger and Baker. The best meatloaf and mac and cheese you can get. I was going to, I was, we went so long with Ginger. I, we, I wanted to get into like all of our favorites because you're right. That is my, that's my go-to right there is the, is the meatloaf. And I've never been a meatloaf fan. I'm like, why am I ordering this? And then I had it and it's <laughs> my go-to every time I'm there. So Jack, sorry to make you feel like the uh, junior varsity here in this uh, call, but uh, your, your wife is pretty pretty great and love talking to her. I've been I've been riding the bench since I met Ginger. I'm good. <laughs> you married up, didn't you? Oh man, did I! Well, we have always enjoyed talking with you as well throughout the years. Love what you did for CSU when you were the athletic director. We respect your opinions. It's just always fun talking to you. So we wanted to bring you on. Even in a relatively short stint as CSU's athletic director, you became one of the most beloved ADs of all time amongst Ram fans. You had a vision. It was always big. Uh, you made meticulous, assertive hire in Jim McElwain that turned out pretty pretty great, got football going. You manifested the on-campus stadium into existence. So we want to look back at a little bit of uh, your career and, and some of those accomplishments and big moments. But uh, I think where I'd like to start is, 
and we kind of talked about this off air, but really want to get your opinion on the state of college athletics and with this conference consolidation and, you know, the decimation of a 118-year-old conference in the Pac-12. What, what are your thoughts on what's happened and where college athletics is heading? Well, I think collegiate athletics is in chaos once again. Um, when I first became athletic director back in 2011, 2012, it was just beginning the massive conference realignment that took place during those years. Um, I spent countless, countless hours with other athletic directors, um, you know, uh, in, in hideaway places trying to figure out what the Mountain West Conference was going to do to either leave the Mountain West Conference, form our own conference, um, because there was uh, so much turmoil and so much realignment taking place. And, you know, we've, we've gone right back to that. And the same reasons that drove all the changes back then are the reasons that it's happening now. It's money. It's media rights money specifically. You know, the media rights deal that the SEC has cut, the Big Ten has cut, um, and lost in that process is the welfare of the student-athletes. Um, it's, it's, um, it's ludicrous to think that UCLA and USC are going to travel to New Jersey for swim meets and tennis matches and football games and basketball games and how that compromises a student-athlete's academic experience is very tangible and very real. I know when uh, I traveled to Hawaii, when CSU played Hawaii, which is about an equal distance, not, it's, it's actually just a bit more, but uh, a comparable distance to traveling to the East Coast, um, it turned the student-athlete's life inside out for about three days. Um, so I, I don't think the student-athlete's well-being is really what's driving this process, and it absolutely should be front and center. And... Um, you, compo you compound that with all of the changes that have taken place with um, the advent of, of NIL and the fact that the O'Bannon case cleared the Supreme Court. Um, there, there's, uh, there's financial chaos for the individual student athletes and for the universities and conference alignment. So um, it's not a good time. Um, I think it will sort itself out. It's not, it's not going to be sorted out by the NCAA. I think the NCAA is toothless. Um, I don't think they lead. Um, I think, you know, quite frankly, I think the uh, NCAA is governed by the Southeast Conference, full stop. Again, it comes down to money. Um, I have lots of strong opinions about that. Um, so I would really like to see something different, whether that means Congress is going to intervene. I think there's a very real chance that that could happen, which, you know, being a free enterprise, open market guy for my entire career, um, the idea that I would ever advocate for federal involvement, government involvement in any side of collegiate athletics, you know, you should tie me to a post and beat me. But I think I'm, but I think I'm getting close. So we all saw what happened with the Pac-12 this last week, this last month. And you just mentioned it. When you started at CSU, the Mountain West almost had the same thing happen. And you fought pretty hard to keep the conference together. What would have been your advice to the Pac-12 over the last 14 months? I think that they were in an, in an untenable position. Um, they simply couldn't win the money war that they were facing. Um, they didn't have a good media rights agreement. Um, and so they were coming up short. And it was almost inevitable that they were going to lose all of the schools with the exception of Oregon State, Washington State, Cal, and Stanford. Um, so I'm not sure I, I would have had advice for them, Mike. 
I don't know that there was a solution for them. Um, they, they, they just lost a lot of their luster and had uh, lost their ability to negotiate a strong media rights deal. And that's what caused the conference to fall apart. How close, how close was their uh, Mountain West and Big 12 merger when you first started? It wasn't close at all. That was never realistic. Um, you know, we, we had talked about forming our own conference that was going to pick off schools from um, some of the other mid-major conferences. But, you know, our ability to go pick off Power 5 schools was pretty compromised. And I don't think we would have ever succeeded at that. But we were thinking about schools like Cincinnati and Houston and um, SMU and schools of, of that ilk in combination with the stronger schools from the Mountain West Conference. Um, and, and, and the geography of that whole conversation was front and center because you're always trying to recruit schools that have got strong population centers because of the value of the media rights in those centers. I mean, a place like Houston obviously um, delivers very, very strong media rights potential just because of the sales opportunities that exist there as compared to Utah State and Logan, Utah, completely different markets. You grew up in Palo Alto. What? Is it just surreal seeing this happen to Stanford and Cal? And uh, can you imagine a scenario that might pit them with some teams from the Mountain West? Well, it is, it is heartbreaking. You know, I, I bleed green and gold, um, but red and white or cardinal and white. Um, Stanford's in my DNA because I, I grew up watching this. I watched, you know, Jim Plunkett play against O.J. Simpson and, you know, and some of the great rivalries when it was the Pac-8. And it was such a terrific conference. I think it was the elite conference in, in the country at some point in time. Um, so it was a lot of fun. So I'm very sad to see it fall apart. Um, I think the future for CSU is, is not doomed by any stretch of the imagination because of all of this conference realignment that's taking place. Um, are we going to be invited to join a Power Five conference? I, I seriously doubt it. I just don't see that being in the cards. You know, the, the Big 12 is off the table, in my opinion. Um, but I do see the constitution of, it, of, a, of a strength in Mountain West in combination with, you know, some of the Pac-12 teams. I mean, I could see a conference that um, would include the Mountain Schools, um, New Mexico, Air Force, CSU, Wyoming, UNLV, uh, maybe Nevada. I'm not sure I'd include Nevada. Maybe Utah State. I love Utah State and their standards and how hard they compete. Um, I think Utah State does some great things, but it's such a remote market. I don't see much value. But take the core mountain schools in combination with a couple schools from Texas, SMU, Rice, University of Texas in San Antonio has got a fantastic football program and it's getting better every day. Um, and then, of course, the Pac-12 schools, Oregon State and Washington State. Um, perhaps Cal would stay in that conversation. I would be, I don't know how that would happen, but perhaps that could happen. But then of course, you've also got San Diego state and Fresno state um, and uh, San Jose states over there as well. I mean, that's 16 schools in total um, that you could, you could think about creating a pretty strong, you'd throw Hawaii out of the conference. Hawaii is, is an incredibly expensive place to go play football. And as I said, it's really tough on the student athletes to travel that distance. Um, so I think you could clean some things up and create a very, very strong conference. And if you could maintain the Pac-12 name through that process, an outside chance, not a strong chance, but an outside chance that that new conference configuration would remain a Power 5 conference. Don't think it would happen, 
but there's always an outside chance. Does it seem like that's going to be where this thing ends up? If if the Pac-4 remain together, they're going to try to piece together some teams from the AAC and the Mountain West. Um, if CSU is one of those taken, is that that seem like the best scenario for for CSU at this time? Or do you think a united Mountain West that holds together and keeps everybody? And I'm not sure how that would happen if the Pac-12 is adding, but what do you think what, what's the best possible scenario here? Well, um, I think what I just laid out is probably our best possible scenario, a really strengthened combination of Oregon state, Washington state, maybe Cal and the strongest of the mountain West schools and three Texas schools. I think that yeah. would be a very strong conference. I don't see us being invited into a power five conference. I mean, yeah. Kislow wrote in the Denver Post the other day, he sees one conference in the future with 64 teams and um, four, maybe five, maybe six regional conferences within that one, within that one league. Um, that makes a ridiculous amount of sense, to be honest with you, because it, it puts you back into the same context of regional and the old Southwest Conference, um, you know, where schools aren't traveling thousands of miles to go compete. So that makes makes an awful lot of sense. Um, that won't be led by the NCAA, though. Something, some other force is going to have to come in and create that. So I, I see that as a possibility, and I'd hate to see CSU left out of that conversation. But there's very real risk we could be. Yeah. Well, it, you know, you talked about having very little chance at at any of those power leagues. Obviously, that those windows have kind of closed. If football had continued on the trajectory that it did. Uh, while you were here under Jim McElwain, do you think that things would have been different? I mean, does CSU have the other components that would have been attractive for being an expansion candidate somewhere? I think three years ago, there was a chance that that could have occurred. Um, you know, I think I think Mac clearly had the had the capability and the track record of running a very successful program. And I think he would have had us as a top 25 school year in and year out. Um uh, I always said there were three things that we need. Well, I would say three things that we got to do is we got to win in football. We got to win in football and we got to win in football. Um, that's, that's essential to a successful athletic department. It's the engine that drives everything. But in addition to that, in addition to winning, um, you got to get people to turn their TV sets on in Denver, in the Denver metro area and prove to the media rights people that you're bringing value to the conversation if you're going to be brought into a power five conference. Um, so, and, and you got to fill the stadium as well um, between the media rights and filling the stadium and showing great traditions and, and um, traditions, you know, at your own university with pageantry and you're putting on a great show. Um, that's what people want to put on television. And with our stadium, um, you know, the, the size of the stadium and the noise at that stadium, if that thing's got 40,000 people in it with a couple of bands playing, it's a great show. It's a fantastic show. And so uh, we had an opportunity. We stubbed our toe. We didn't win. And so we dropped the ball. We have Joe Parker on once a month, and you have just echoed everything that he says about the importance of engagement by our fans and not just showing up at the stadium, but also turn on TVs because that's a metric that – uh, TV is looking at, you know, and, and, and conferences are looking at an expansion. So um, interesting to hear you validate that, of course. And um, 
on a good note, Jack, it seems like we have a really fantastic head football coach in place uh, and a good staff. Do you have a relationship with the Norvells and do you share Mike and I's enthusiasm for the program might be heading? You know, I've gotten to develop a really good relationship with Jay and his wife, Kim, um, for a variety of reasons. I, th I think at front and center is I've been I've been uh, helping John Weber to lead the cause to raise NIL money specifically for the football team. And so I've gotten to know Jay and Kim through that process. And, uh, you know, two thoughts about Jay. Number one, as a man, he he, for, he, he reminds me so much of Tony Dungy. Um, he's such a great human being. He's got great values. He's the real deal. And he cares so deeply about the student athletes. Um, he cares deeply about everybody, frankly. Um, but the student athletes are front and center. And he's got integrity beyond beyond question. He's just a fantastic human being. Is he a great coach? We'll see, right? Jury's still out. We're in year two. I'm really optimistic he's a great coach. I went to this to last Wednesday morning scrimmage, and uh, I was stunned at the difference in what I saw compared to four months ago last season, just in terms, first of all, at every single position, we're one inch taller. Um, a whole different set of human beings has shown up in terms of size and stature, the length of their arms. It's, it's, they look like football players. They look like the real deal. Um, and the crispness of the scrimmage, uh, you know, the throws, uh, the lack of mistakes. We had a guy that could actually kick the ball 65 yards as opposed to maxing out at 30. Um, you know, it looked like a real football program. So my optimism that we're going to be competitive this year is very high. I think we're going to, I think we're going to be able to compete. Now, no matter what field of employment you're in, it doesn't feel good when you're being fired. You know, all CSU fans know that you were let go in 2014. Uh, most people would hold a grudge, but you're still involved with the un university. Why is that? I'm still pissed off, Mike. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I love that job. It was the best job I ever had. I love the student athletes. I love the coaches and the fans. Um, I was a private sector guy and, um, you know, I was, I was, I was raised in business and coached up in business. Um, it's kind of like what you got to do to succeed in an athletic department is win football games, win football games and win football games in business. You got to deliver results, deliver results, deliver results, and you're fully accountable for that. And if you bring that kind of a culture into a, a public publicly administered state university, it's a culture shock. Um, and, and um, you know, I, I, I can see all kinds of mistakes I made in terms of relationships and things of that sort. So I take accountability for all of those things. But at the same time, that was the transformation that needed to take place. Um, and uh, I don't think I would change a thing. Um, but I do miss the job. I absolutely enjoyed the job. And, um, and I thought I was good at it as well. I think that was kind of everyone's understanding is that as you were trying to change the culture, you were butting heads a little bit with maybe unhappy employees that thought you were too demanding. Um, is that the crux of why you and Dr. Frank parted ways? You know, Tony and I had a great working relationship and I had, an, I, I had and I still have an enormous amount of respect for him. Um, uh, I think that the speed of the changes that I was bringing to the athletic department which whether you like it or not, as goes the athletic department, so goes the rest of the university. And so we were under the microscope. 
Um, and it was terrifying a lot of bureaucratic administrators inside the administration. Um, and so that was the rift that was taking place. And um, as Tony said to me frequently, I, I don't suffer fools gladly. Um, and so if I find things aren't being done correctly, I deal with them on a very straight on way. And that's not a public administration methodology. That's not the way most universities are run. Um, they tend to beat around the bush about bad performance. I, I had a couple of employees lie to me. Um, stunning, in my opinion, that anybody would lie to someone else in business. But I did. I had a couple of employees lie to me, and it was impossible to fire them. Um, and, and that's the difference between a public environment and a private sector environment. And it's very inefficient. doesn't work well. doesn't work as well as it could. Well, you've told this story before about how CSU had approached you for a donation way back and and you just weren't inspired. You had ideas for something bigger and, and more inspiring, which kind of was how you came up with the on-campus stadium thoughts. And Dr. Frank ended up hiring you as the athletic director thereafter. Can you kind of retell how that transpired? Well, we built the indoor practice facility for the football program some number of years ago. Now, I don't remember. It was a while ago, uh, probably 2008, 2009. And um, I didn't know anybody. I mean, CSU had never reached out to me. I didn't have a relationship with CSU. I was working ridiculous hours in my career. And um, and I found out about, and I gave money um, to the indoor practice facility project. And I gave a lot of money to it. And um, as soon as you give a lot of money to anything in a university, you become best friends with a lot of people. <laughs> and uh, Tony and I got to know each other through that through that process. Um, and and um, and I was, you know, Paul Kowalczyk was the athletic director at the time. And um, I told Paul, first of all, I saw the indoor practice facility for the first time after it was built. And it was 60 yards long. Um, and I had a hissy fit. I, you know, I was, where in the hell are the other, <laughs> you know, where are the other 60 yards? Football fields are 120 yards long. 10 yards on each end zone and 100 yards. Where are the other, you know, and, and. And it, so it was, again, a reflection of what I call the standards of mediocrity that have prevailed so long and so many times at CSU uh, that just drives all of us crazy. And so I was kind of pounding my fist with Paul about that. And I said, besides that, Paul, we got to move the stadium on campus or we're never going to have any traditions here. I think it's critical if we're going to recover this thing. And he said, well, why don't you go talk to the president? And I said, sure, I'll go talk to the president. And so that's how Tony and I really became um, familiar uh, with each other. And I talked to him at length about that. He bought into the vision. He saw it. I think he agreed with it. And I think he was right to have agreed with it. It does have a transformative power. And um, we'll get there. We will get there. It's taken us a lot longer than any, any of us wanted, but we will get there. Well, speaking of the on-campus stadium, what um, I, there was obviously a lot of challenges there, but what were some of the toughest parts of getting that project going and ultimately completed? I know that the completion happened after you were gone, but uh, any good stories or, or stuff that you re recall from from that? You know, there were so many positive experiences that I had in the fundraising activities, um, talking to donors who just stepped up and gave us, you know, multiple seven figure gifts um, from people that I had no idea could do that sort of thing for the university. And they did and was just overwhelmed by their generosity and by their shared vision about what could take place. Those, those are great memories. 
so much frustration in, you know, you know, forcing everyone to, to maintain very, very high standards about what the design of the stadium should be. Um, it was just kind of this attitude that started to slip into the project of let's just get a stadium on campus. That's good enough. And um, a lot of friction came out of that process. And um, one of the things that I did that I think was really helpful was I said, we're going to design the last 10% of the stadium first. Um, what's the branding going to look like? Um, what's the scoreboard going to look like? Because by the time you get done building the stadium, nobody's ever got money for the last 10% and you don't get to tie a yellow ribbon around it. And that really compromises it. And I think that um, I think they did a great job of branding the stadium and putting a yellow ribbon around it. I think it looks terrific. You were extremely diplomatic and accommodating with the opposing viewpoints on the stadium, particularly the, the save our stadium people who we all know weren't really proponents of the old stadium. They were simply opponents of building a new one. What, how frustrating was that aspect of it? I know you were very diplomatic publicly, but now, now what did you think of it? It's, it's, it's all part of a, whether it's a private sector project or even a university project, the community is going to have a voice and sometimes the voice is rational and other times it's irrational. You know, in this instance, I thought it was really irrational, but you got to take your patience, Bill, and you just have to answer the questions and move on. And, and, and I have had so many of the SOS Hughes people, Save Our Stadium Hughes people, who were so vehemently opposed to the stadium and downright nasty at times, come up to me after the stadium has been completed and say, you were right, you were right, we were wrong. This is terrific. It's the right thing, and we're so glad it happened. I've had many people come, uh, you know, approach me and say that to me. Is that and, right? That's yeah. awesome. That's yeah, great. it is awesome. Well, I know you also, I, th I believe you were credited with the creation of uh, of the Physical Hall, uh, Athletics Hall of Fame, which is stewarded now by resident historian John Hearn. And and I know that's been a great addition uh, at Moby, as well as in the Markley Hall of Champions. And now all we need is a, a ring of fame. Can you can you spearhead that for us and get that done? <laughs> well, there's some good players out there. I know we need to armor wouldn't, them. Right? Wouldn't that be good? Yeah. I would wouldn't like. that be good? Seems like there's some hesitancy for that. I'm not sure why, but um and when you see people from a private sector go into sports administration, sometimes struggle with certain aspects of the job, you know, you hear about maybe the struggles of of scheduling due to not maybe having connections within the industry with other athletic directors. Um, you were able to come in, you signed a deal with Under Armour. Uh, I think you got CSU, uh, the sports radio network, into a more prominent radio station and into Denver more prominently. Um, were there any other aspects, though, of the job that when you took it, you just kind of found like you were beating your head against the wall or were just challenging for you just because of, of your lack of maybe being in the industry? You know, the lack of industry experience wasn't a problem. Um, I think you commit yourself to something like being an athletic director, even without the experiences. Um, it is a hundred hour week and you just study and study and study and you call people and talk to them and you learn. Um, and it does take time. There's no question. It does take time and you end up learning through your own mistakes that, you know, you would prefer not to have made, but, um, it's just a steep learning curve. Um, the most difficult part of it with, without question is, is the bureaucracy of a state university. I mean, it's how long it takes to get anything done. You want to fill a job, it's a six to nine month process. And uh, you cannot succeed in business 
with those kinds of timelines. We always, the businesses that I ran, you know, I preached over and over and over again to my executive team, time kills all deals. Um, move, get things done. And, and you know, if, if it's going to take six to nine months to fill a position inside the athletic department because you have to post it for six months, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it just slows things down to a painful pace. How's your relationship with the athletic department now? Do you have much of one? Yeah. Um, and, you know, with the football program in particular. Um, but, you know, Joe Parker, I have an enormous amount of respect for Joe and I like Joe and, you know, we're not social with each other. We, he's got a huge job to do. And, you know, I've got my own career that I'm still running and, but, you know, we have a lot of respect. I think the world of Nico, um, I was talking to our swim and dive coach, uh, Woody, the other day. I love Woody. I think he's a great coach. Um, I'm working with, uh, the women's and men's golf program right now as well um, to help them raise a little bit of money. Um, so uh, it's it's fun to be an alumni and it's it's fun to see your university succeed. And I still want that for CSU. And so I'll still do my part to make that happen. And you worked closely with uh, Amy Parsons during the stadium project. Um, now our current CSU president, how, how do you feel she'll serve as, as president? You know, Amy's a very smart, talented lady. And I think um, it's hard to come in again. She's coming in as a quasi private sector person, you know, although she was, um, although she was in Tony's administration for an extended period of time, she still doesn't come up. She didn't come up the traditional academic and research route. And so she starts off with two strikes against her with, the deans and the professors. Um, it's tough. It's very tough. But she's a talented lady. She's a very, very nice person. Um, and she's got a steep mountain to climb. And I think she, I think she'll take it on and I think she'll succeed. I hope she succeeds. You once had a pretty good relationship with Larry Eustace. You then at one point advocated for his firing. Um, can you talk at all about why it came to that? Ultimately, he was fired by Joe Parker in the subsequent years. But uh, and he's now back in the Mountain West, by the way, uh, as an advisor for Boise State. So um, just thoughts on him? Well, my mother always taught me that if you don't have anything nice to say about someone, don't say anything. <laughs> but I, I will tell you that Larry was my big mistake. He was a big mistake. I didn't like the way he treated his staff in particular. And I didn't like the way he treated his players. Um, there was no, I don't think there was any physical abuse, but I just felt that um, – wasn't the right way to orient yourself towards your staff and towards the players. And um, uh, if I could have made a change on my own, I absolutely would have made that change a lot sooner than it happened. Well, um, speaking of Boise State, um, quick question on them. I know that you were a big advocate and, and went to bat for trying to hold them and I believe San Diego State in the conference back when they were flirting with the Big East and Part of doing that, I think, I don't know how much you had in, involved in it, but I know the conference gave them another almost up, upwards of $2 million a year in TV revenue to, to entice them to stay. Um, why was it important for you? I, and this is kind of debated on Ram Nation message boards, by the way, is why do they get more money and and whatnot? But why, why was it important in your eyes that the conference have Boise State in it? I didn't think it was, to be honest with you. Um, hmm. Uh, I didn't lead that negotiation, mm. uh, and I I felt pretty confident that the Big East deal was ultimately going to fall apart. It just 
wasn't possible. Um, neither one of those schools had the athletic budgets to accommodate that kind of travel schedule. And I just didn't see it happening. Um, so I was, I was not in the center of that negotiation. I wasn't disappointed that, that they stayed, but I think they would have stayed anyway. Um, it just, it, it wasn't feasible for San Diego State to be traveling to the BE schools. And same thing for Boise. So interesting. I don't know why we always, I don't know if we'd heard that and brand fans always think that you were kind of at the forefront of that. So it's interesting to hear you say otherwise. No, I think that the, you know, Mountain West Conference Commissioner and, and some of the other presidents were, you know, they were afraid and justifiably so. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to be a Monday morning quarterback and second guess what was done. Um, I think it served the Mountain West Conference well. It, it's not serving us as well anymore as it was in the initial years. But certainly in the beginning, it did serve us well. Just want to let our listeners know that Mike jumped off because he is actually at the U.S. Amateur watching Connor Jones. And uh, and he's on his last hole. So Mike just hopped off to watch that last hole. And and I will finish up with his questions. But uh, so so Mike wanted to ask you, you grew up in Palo Alto. Obviously, we talked about that. You attended UCSB until they dropped their football program, then continued it. Foothill College in Santa Clara area. What then brought you to Fort Collins and CSU? You know, there was an intermediate step in there as well. After UCSB, I went to San Diego State. Hmm. Um, they picked up my scholarship from University of California at Santa Barbara. And uh, there were two quarterbacks there at the time, uh, Billy Donkers and Jesse Freitas. Um, those are names that probably nobody knows, but they both played in the NFL for a few years. And they were in front of me, and they made me a tight end. Um, and uh, I thought, oh, my God, this is real football. This hurts. You know, it's different than being a quarterback standing, you know, in a pocket with a whole bunch of guys protecting you. And so I decided I wanted to play quarterback still. Had to go back to junior college and then to Colorado State. And uh, I was just, you know, blessed and fortunate, frankly, um, that CSU recruited me. And one of the reasons that CSU recruited me is because of Jack Christensen. Um, one of the great names in CSU history um, in the Hall of Fame, in the NFL Hall of Fame. He was my next door neighbor. He was a Stanford head coach. He was a 49ers coach. Um, uh, and one of his daughters used to babysit me when I was a kid. And so that's how I got to know Mr. Christensen. Wow. And uh, he watched me play high school football and he watched me play at Foothill. And um, he made a call and that's how I ended up at Colorado State. Wow. Small world. It's a very small world. Uh, and then in 2016, you ran for a seat in the U.S. Senate. What was that experience like for you? And and do you have any interest in getting back in the political ring at all? You know, that was a terrific experience. Um, it was my first step into politics. And um, it, th th that is a business that does require experience to be successful in, uh, and to be good at it. I learned a ton. It's not just it's not just being good at public policy and knowing what's right for the country. You also need to know how to win. You need to know how to win elections if you're going to be an effective politician. What, a politician, whether you like it or not, that's a reality. Uh, I didn't have that experience. I got that experience uh, by running back in 2016. And um, I'm so disappointed in our political system today. Um, you know, and I, and I put all of the accountability and responsibility on we the people, those of us who are in the middle, the silent majority, um, because we don't vote in primary elections and we don't participate 
in the entire political process were quiet. Whereas people who are on the extremes of the Republican Party and people who are on the extremes of the Democratic Party, they're engaged, they're passionate, they give money, and they vote in primaries. I mean, Donald Trump controls the Republican Party because the extreme right wing, the MAGA wing of the Republican Party, shows up, they vote, they give money. The same thing is true about the radical left. They show up and they give money and they control things. And that's why we've become so horribly polarized in this country. And until we, the people in the middle, decide to get engaged and take back our country and have a voice and vote and give money to candidates you think are rational and reasonable and will do a good job, we're going to keep on getting the same thing that we've got. We've got nobody to blame but ourselves for it. Wow, that was well said. I'm glad glad you answered that. One more from Mike here. You were drafted in the 14th round by the Miami Dolphins. You stuck in the league for a couple of years. What was your time in the NFL like? What do you remember about it? I think it was the 12th round. I think I was, well, maybe, I don't know. I was, I think, the 212th player drafted. Hmm. I didn't get a lot of money. Nobody gave me a big signing bonus, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a great experience. Um, you know, I was... I was in the Dolphins camp for a while um, and then Buffalo, Cleveland um, and ultimately San Francisco. And I got to meet some great players, played with uh, OJ Simpson, you know, in Buffalo when, when he was there and Joe Ferguson was the starting quarterback. And when I was in San Francisco, Jim Plunkett was the starting quarterback. And so I, I got to meet some fantastic personalities, you know, but like, like it, it's a job. And, and I wanted that job. I wanted to play professional football. And when you're getting cut and traded and released, it's like getting fired. And, and so it's stressful. It's disappointing at times. Um, and at the same time, you're getting to do something you're passionate about and you love doing. So it was all of the above. I, I wouldn't trade that, that experience for anything. Well, a couple more for you, Jack. You had mentioned your involvement in the Green and Gold Guard. How did you become involved and uh, and how would you say that the collective is going right now? Um, I got involved because I was so opposed to it. Um, I was I was really disappointed um, that we were going down. John Weber, who I think is, I don't know if you know, I'm sure you know John. Yeah, we've had John, him on. He's awesome. John's just, he is awesome. He's just doing a fantastic job for us. I think he's one of the foremost experts in NIL collectives in the country by far and away. Um and he and I were talking about it. And he convinced me that, number one, it is what it is. And, and number two, I, I, there was a turning point for me about NIL. This idea that student athletes could get paid for their name, image, and likeness really offended me because they got a $55,000 scholarship. They're getting a per diem. Um, they're, getting, you know, they're getting their school paid for, et cetera. Um, and so they're already getting paid. Um, so why are we doing this? Um, and I remember when Bryce Young had won the Heisman Trophy. And you remember the TV commercial, I think it was a Toyota commercial. Um, and Tebow was on the commercial, and all the great Heisman Trophy winners in Heisman House. And Bryce yeah. Young, Bryce, Bryce Young. I believe it was Nissan, yeah. But yes, oh, I remember. Nissan, right, and, and Bryce Young shows up in this commercial and he does a great job. And he did a, did a few other commercials as well. And, and I remember thinking to myself, hell yes, why shouldn't he get paid? for the value of his name, image, and likeness. Um, I think it's terrific. And I do think it's terrific. He's entitled to that money. I mean, for God's sakes, if Nick Saban can make $11 million a year, 
he can make a couple of million bucks after winning the Heisman Trophy. Um, what I don't like, um, and I, I will never accept as a good thing, are the collectives. The collectives are wrong. The one thing the NCAA has said is that there will be no pay for play. You can't just give a kid money to play football. They actually have to do work to earn the NIL money that they're being paid. And of course, the NCAA is not enforcing that rule in any shape, any way, shape, or form. University of Florida has $16 million in their collective third string offensive tackle is making $75,000 a year. Tell me he's got any value in his name, image, or likeness. That is just abject pay for play. And it's wrong. It's perverted. Um, I think if a kid has value, if his name, image, and likeness has value, let him go out and market his own name, image, and likeness. They can hire Learfield Sports to go do that for them. They can get their own agent to go do that for them and capitalize on the value of their NIL. I think that's terrific and it'd be a great business experience for them. But the collectives, including the collective that we've got at CSU, they should all be shot. You know, no university, no athletic program should be permitted to raise money to pay players for the value of their name, image, and likeness, full stop, because that is pay for play. Um, and if that stopped, I think that we would see um, players, individual player, players who've got big names make a lot of money. But you're not going to see this broad distribution of millions. It's, it's over. It's a multi-billion dollar industry already. The NIL market's already a multi-billion dollar industry. We'd see that come to an end. Um, and I would like to see that happen. Okay, so you feel that way, but you've gotten involved. You're helping with this collective. Why? Because I talk out of both sides of my mouth. I want to win. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's why this exists. You, you know what? To win. You know what? You, you can you can stand outside the circle and bitch and moan and complain all you want, but that's not going to help you win football games. So let's win football games that influence and try and change things at the same time. But I'm not going to be naive about it. And how about the uh, these transfer rules that have popped up that? supposed to be helping the student athlete, but now you've seen the players play four games and then bail on their team because maybe the season's not going all that well. They're not getting quite the playing time and they're quitting in the middle of the season. How do you, some of these changes that have happened in college athletics that maybe were, were meant to to do right by student athletes or are not being followed to the true spirit of why they were created. Uh, if you were in college athletics still today, would you be beating your head against the wall with some of this stuff? Yeah, I would. I, I think that you, you've raised the third leg of the stool, you know, about the chaos, all the conference realignment, the NIL money, and the third leg of the stool is the portal um, and the fact that kids can pick up and go anytime they want. I think that's that's detrimental, not just to, I, I, well, I, it's certainly detrimental to the university and it's detrimental to programs. And I don't think it's fair. I really don't think it's fair. Um in a perfect world, and again, I'll talk out of both sides of my mouth here because I just said no more collectives. But if we had a collective bargaining agreement with the student athletes in Division One football, for example, that they're going to get some share of the media rights and they're going to be distributed to them as compensation for, for playing football in addition to the scholarships that they're getting, great. But then they sign a contract. They commit to three years. They don't get to transfer Full stop. If they if they're getting paid, they got to stay. It's just like you know, if you sign an employment agreement with a company, 
for one, two, or three, or however many years you sign the deal, you can't go compete against that company because they've committed to pay you and they're going to pay you. And so I think that student athletes to make good, need to make good decisions about where they're going to go to university. And if they make a mistake, they make a mistake, they live with it. And at the end of the contract, they can go transfer someplace else. But there should be contracts that define a minimum amount of time, both that the university is committed to them and they are committed to the university. It's got to be a balanced equation. It's way too unbalanced in favor of the student athletes at this point. And I don't think it serves anyone's interest well. Well, great stuff, Jack. Hey, do you still do a annual college football trip with your buddies? We do. We Where do. Where are you going this year? I, I can't tell you. If I told you my wife would find out, then I'd be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. We go, to, we, we, go to, we go to Ireland every year now. Oh, really? Yeah, we go the week of the Ryder Cup. So it's morphed a little bit into something different. I belong to a golf club over in Ireland called Old Head. And um, so we, we, there's 12 of us that go. And uh, we go the week of the Ryder Cup. Like we're going to go September 25th through October 1st or something like that this year when the Ryder Cup's being played over in Europe. Um, and we'll play five or six days of golf and um, we'll watch the Ryder Cup and we will drink excessively and it will be a good time. <laughs> that sounds spectacular. You know how to do it right. You've got it, oh, you've got nice. it figured out. It's great talking uh, to you, Joel. Really good to see you. You too, Jack. Now. Really appreciate it. I know we went long, but uh, it's awesome catching up with you. Yeah, me as well. Take care. All right. Thanks, Jack. Man, was that good. Big time thanks to Jack Ram and his wife, Ginger. What a power couple. Both are very generous with their time and very thoughtful in their candid responses. Just love that conversation. So many good responses. Uh, Mike is back. Mike Mike had to bail out for a little bit because he is at the U.S. Amateur, the 123rd U.S. Amateur at uh, Cherry Hills. It's the second day. Uh, yesterday was at, uh, what, Monday was at Colorado Golf Club. Today was at Cherry Hills. And what they do is they take the top 64 teams or the top 64 players, right, Mike? And then now they go into a bracket play. So, Mike, how did uh, how did how did it end up for our two CSU guys? So I was fortunate. I got a uh, I showed up right when Davis Bryant was uh, finishing up on 18. Man, I got to tell you, the backspin on his ball on <laughs> on the green was just amazing. And, you know, unfortunately, he uh, he's not going to make the cut. He was a. Uh, want to say four uh four over five over yesterday and i think he finished one or two over today so he's not going to qualify but i came uh connor smith our nil kid from last week our ram nation podcast i I got here when he was on 17 and dude is carried his own bags today like a boss and on 17 eagled i mean it was it was awesome for me to get there right when he did that. And then, so I was able to follow him from 17 to five when I ducked out to, uh, to get on with, with Ginger and Jack and, and you, um, but Connor played well yesterday. He was four, uh, four under yesterday, um, finished one under today. Uh, I was able to catch him on nine, uh, which great, great, uh, par save to, to keep him at one under for the day. Uh, I think right now he's tied for fifth overall um, in the tournament. So he'll be qualifying. He'll be moving on to match play tomorrow. But it's great. Huge gallery for him today. It was by far the biggest gallery on the, on the course. And and it, it's just great seeing him uh, again. He's rocking his CSU bag. 
carrying it himself while everyone else has a caddy and, you know, maybe cost him a couple strokes. Uh, he missed a few par- uh, birdie putts on, on 18, one and two that uh, would have, would put him into the lead, but uh, it, it was, it was great watching him and just great seeing him, seeing all the Ram fan, everybody wearing CSU gear uh, kind of felt bad. I'm rocking Nike gear, but I mean, I do have my CSU lid on, but yeah, no, it was great, and, and I'm excited to see what he does at match play. Well, that's good, man. Thanks for the update. Yep, he's uh, minus five after the two days, tied for fifth, so he will be moving on. We'll have to check out uh, who he will be matched up against in match play. But uh, great run for him over the last couple of days. Thanks for the update, Mike. What you think of uh, Jack and Ginger? G- Ginger's awesome. I, he, uh, you know, I, I I grew up a hot, uh, Arkansas fan. My, I have family that that lives in Gentry in, in that Gentry Springdale, Fayetteville area. So th- that was the first team I followed as a kid. Uh, man, what a great Woo Pig Suey that she uh, <laughs> she let out, and and I think everyone knows my affinity for food. I mean, that was that was a fun interview. Um, Jack still so passionate, you know. It, I, I've said what I've said on, on the board and, and I always felt like he was a great voice for CSU. There's things I didn't agree with as an athletic director, things I don't agree with Joe Parker as our athletic director. Um, but just still seeing that passionate in the question of yours that I asked <laughs> about how, how you can still be involved when you're let go, you know, especially the kind of the way he was. Um, and he's like, it's, it's a no brainer. You know, this, I, I bleed green and gold. Um, so, I mean, it, it just gives you goosebumps hearing how passionate both of them are when Ginger's like, you know, as soon as I got here and I saw how few lifetime alumni members there was, I knew I had to get involved in, and you did, you know, I, I just hearing that, you know, it gets you excited, especially 18 days away from our first game. Yeah. Hearing him say he was still he's still pissed that he was fired, and uh, and he talked about how it was his favorite job ever, and it was a hundred hour a week job, you know, just totally grinding. But obviously, it was a passion for him, and uh, just just great to hear his perspective and and still his passion for CSU despite everything that's happened. So, that and I gotta fun. say, the the thing I loved where he was like, "We need to get more fans watching our games. We need to get more fans." buying tickets and filling up that stadium. So I want to know how much he's going to get blasted on Ram Nation for saying our fans need to step up because every time Joe does it, you know, he's called every name in the book. So we'll see we'll see what happens with uh with Jack whenever uh Ram Nation hears this. Yep. Yep, we'll see. Jack seems to and rightly so. Jack Jack did a lot of great things and and really galvanized the the fan base, but uh, there's a lot of fans that that think Jack walks on water, and and I'm one of them. I love I love everything he's done, um, but there's also people that unfairly criticize everything that comes out of Joe's mouth, and that those two uh, said exactly the same thing that needs to be happening with Ram fans. So you're right, everyone get on board. Jack says it's so. So anyway, good stuff today, Mike. Appreciate you hanging in there from the golf course. You gonna go ahead and hang out, have a milkshake or something? No, that's that's Castle Pines, dude. Come on. They got milkshakes at Cherry Hills as well, and I know that Castle Pines no, got a great tri- milkshake tradition. But I did have a uh, 
a frosty, frosty cold beverage. This is Jack would do. Yep. Prime rib and Coors Light. Coors Light with prime rib. <laughs> All right, Michael. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks everybody for listening. Please support Ginger and Baker and Peterson Toyota for for helping us out always. They're great sponsors. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Go Rams. Go Rams. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.